Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once said, The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Violent Vice contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Violent Vice. I'm Audie. And I'm John John. Hello. Hello. If you guys could do us a huge favor, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to, that would be really great. And hit that subscribe button. We'd really, really appreciate it. If you guys do have any spooky stories or creepy tales or even true crime stories and want us to share it on air, uh, you can email us at violentvice at gmail.com. Or on Facebook as well with, a, I think it's still Violent Vice Podcast. So, but I mean, if you don't want to go completely creepy and just weird, I'm okay with that. The creepy stuff gets me all worked up. So, you know, do that if you want, but know that you're causing me suffering. It's okay. It's <laughs> all, all good and fun. Now. On today's topic, Jack the Ripper continued. I'm going to just give a quick little refresher of where we left off. So, so far, Jack the Ripper's five conical victims are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, and Elizabeth Stride. And Elizabeth Stride was murdered on September 30th. And we are going to talk about Catherine Eddowes, who was also murdered on the same day by the same person. Uh Oh, double whammy. Double whammy. (laughs) So, to get into it, Catherine Eddowes, also known as Kate Conaway, Kate Kelly, for her different husbands, was born in Gracely Green, Wolverhampton, on the 14th of April, 1842. Her parents were template worker George Eddowes and his wife, Catherine Evans. The family moved to London a year after she was born, and she had 10 siblings. That's a lot. It is a lot, and I thought we had a big family. Well, Proven wrong once again. Yep. Oh, my. At age 15 in the year 1857, both of Ito's parents had died, and this resulted in Ito's and her siblings being admitted to an orphanage in Bermondonzi Workhouse. Ooh. Yeah, a little bit of a rough upbringing there. Ten kids all at once for an orphanage. I'd say that's like the opposite of generous donation it's like the opposite yeah i don't know yeah that's still a lot of kids all at once it is she later returned to wolverhampton where an aunt had obtained her employment as a template stamper in the old hall works itos was soon fired from this employment however from having been caught stealing yeah not the nicest thing she also relocated relocated from Wolverhampton to Bringingham where she briefly lived with an uncle so at least she has a supportive family yeah I mean like granted they didn't take her in but then I mean if they took her in there would be favoritism there'd be 10 of them like I said before that's a lot it but is. at least they were helping where they could yeah so, okay I can it, see it yeah 
And then Ito's worked as a tray polisher in Bringingham for four months until she then returned again to Wolverhampton. And nine months later, she went back to Birmingham. So she kind of moved back and forth between these two towns for a little over a year. Well, I'm sure she made friends in both towns, so that should help. Yep. Speaking of friends, while she resided in Birmingham, she began a relationship with a former soldier named Thomas Conaway, with whom she had two two children with. Were they married? We were going to get to that. Oh, kids first, then marriage. Okay. Kids first. Okay. At, um, at one stage in the relationship, Edo was actually had gotten a tattoo with the initials of her common law husband, T.C., inscribed in blue ink on her left forearm. So they were common law marriage, uh, meaning that they lived together for a certain amount of time. They didn't actually have like a formal ceremony. Okay. It's more just like, sort of like if we these days just go to the courthouse, get it done, and then now we're official. I think thing. that even that, I think you like literally can just live together for a certain amount of years and then be accepted by the government as common law. I just know that common law divorces are a lot worse than actual marriages. Oh. Yeah. That's a whole other subject. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. At least that's how it works in the States. Okay. So at this time, uh, Ito's was about five feet tall. She had dark auburn hair and hazel eyes. Friends described her as a very jolly woman, always singing, uh, very intelligent and scholarly, but possessed a fierce temper. So, she got the brown hair. Yep. But she was nice, but all, like, but also angry? Nice, but a quick temper. Like, nice disposition, just got angry easy. Okay. That's um, sort of a little contradictory there. Because I usually think of nice people being, like, on the peaceful side. But I guess, like, friendly and fierce. Friendly, you just don't want to get on the wrong side of her. Okie doke. Yep. She was also short, too, like all the other ones. Oh. Five Well, feet. I'm short. So am You're I. You're short. So, normal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> normal for us. Yeah. In 1868, Eddowes and Conway relocated to London, taking lodgings in Westminster. West, oh, Westminster. Oh. And they had a third child there. While in London, Eddowes took to drinking. She left her family in 1880, and to avoid contact with Eddowes, Thomas Conway drew his army pension under an assumed name of Quinn, and then also kept their son's addresses a secret from Catherine Eddowes just so that she wouldn't be able to keep in contact. So they moved. She started drinking. He hid the family. She left, then he hid the family. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. By the following year, she was living with a new partner named John Kelly at Cooney's Common Lodging House at 55 Flower and Dean Street, Spitafields, at the center of London's most notorial criminal slum. So kind of around... The way I was looking at it on a map, it's kind of around Whitechapel area, but just off to the side more. So, like, similar setting, but not the exact same spot. Yeah. Okay. I'm piecing it together. Yep. During this time, she took to casual sex work to help pay for the rent. The morning before her murders, the 29th of September, and their uh, Kettos and Ellie met in the early afternoon, and... Eddowes told 
Kelly, Kelly that she would go to Bermondosey to try to get some money from her daughter, Annie, who is married to a gun maker in Southark. So from the sounds of it, uh, Catherine kind of used and abused the family. And mm. this is just what I'm picking up from her uh, common law husband hiding the family, um, hiding addresses, all that stuff. At least that's the picture that I got. Okay, so sort of more like she had a vague idea of where they might be and from what she's heard and essentially just went to them for money to always. Get stuff. Yep, okay. for drinking. Okie doke. A little bit of a toxic personality. A little. With money from pawning his boots, Kelly took a bed at the lodging house just after 8 p.m. And according to the deputy, keeper so like the person that runs the lodging house he remained there all night okay at 8 30 p.m that same night saturday the 29th of september Edwards was found lying drunk in the road on algate high street by P- police constable lewis robinson she was then taken into custody uh to the bishop gate police station where she was detained and she gave the name quote unquote nothing until she was sober enough to leave at 1 in the morning on the morning of September 30th. Hmm. Doesn't say much about her self-esteem. No. Upon leaving the station, instead of taking a right uh, that would take her to the shortest home in Flower and Dean Street, Addos turned left to the general direction of Algate. She was last seen alive at 1.35 a.m. by three witnesses, Joseph Laudende, Joseph Heim Levy and Harry Harris, who who themselves had just left a club on Duke Street after drinking. She was standing. So, two Joes and a Harry. Uh, yep, two Joes and a Harry. That kind of sounds like a country folk band. It does, doesn't it? They saw her standing and talking with a man at the entrance of a church passageway, which led southwest from duke street to mighty square along the south wall of great synagogue of london so two joes and a harry sar and they started going through and she started going through this area yep a church passage which led uh from a single street to a square so like a more open space along the south wall of the great synagogue of london okay for some reason, I thought it was, like, inside the synagogue. I'm just like, why is there a oh, street no. going through a temple? Just along the wall of one. Okay. It was just sightseeing type thing. Yep. Okay. Only Londe could fully describe the man, whom he described as a fair mustache man wearing a navy jacket, a peaked cloth cap, and a red scarf. Chief Inspector Donald's swanson had stated in his report that he was doubtful of the description he wrote that londe had said some of the clothing of the deceased and recounted that the woman when they found the body was not wearing exactly that clothing Hmm. well they did just like leave a club they did probably weren't the most sober of people yep a patrolling Policeman at the time, police constable James Harvey, walked down the church passageway from Duke Street very shortly afterwards, but his route took him back down that church passage to Duke Street without entering the square, so he did not see anyone. Mm-hmm. At 1.30 a.m., police constable Watkins of the city 
police past the southwest east corner on his route that brought him through the miter square every 12 to 14 minutes he had his lantern fixed to his belt and he had left the square and turned right towards Elgate. Five minutes later, the three Jewish gentlemen, Harry Harris, Joseph Heimlevy, and Joseph Lande, had left the club and walked past. So, like, there is a good amount of time. Not, like, huge, not, like, hours, but... Yeah. Like, 15 to 20 minutes where mm. that square is empty. Okay. The woman had... Uh, her back to them but they could see that her hand was wrestling against the man's chest levy was immediately convinced that the couple were up to no good and announced briskly i don't like going home by myself when i see these sorts of characters about like was she referring to the three guys or the supposed killer? oh levy sorry to clarify i know this is a little jumbled levy was one of the three guys that was walking but they had split off at this time and he oh, says, I don't okay. like going home by myself when people are having sex in the middle of the street or doing whatnot. Okay. Well, that's fair. Yep. In a hurry to get away, he didn't really pay the couple much attention. Although he did say that the man had been three or so inches taller than the woman, so five foot three. Joseph Lunde, however, was a little less disgusted and kind of observed more. Although he hadn't seen the woman's face, he was almost certain that her clothing that she had on was the same as Catherine Eddowes, a woman that he didn't know. And he confirmed this when he was later showed this in the police station. Hmm. So he's seen her before or knew her in that knew sort of, of her. way? Yeah. Okay. Although the street lighting wasn't really good that night, he did catch a glimpse of the man's face and he was able to provide the police with a description he had the appearance of a sailor and was about 30 years or so and he did say at the time he's about five foot nine inches tall and of medium build he had fair complexion and a small fair mustache he sported a reddish handkerchief tied in a knot wore a pepper and wore a pepper salt colored loose fitting jacket and had on gray peaked cloth cap However, it should be noted that Lande also obtained a quick glimpse of the man as he passed by, since the couple were doing nothing particularly suspicious, and he mm -hmm. later maintained that he would not be able to recognize nor identify the man were he to see them again. So, out of the three descriptions, I do want to point out, they all have a height difference, but the red scarf is the same. Okay. And, I mean, they were coming from a club and drunk so they probably like depth perception isn't the greatest but they could tell the color so that would make the most sense yep so 15 minutes from when the men had walked by Catherine's body was discovered in mitre square just a few steps away from where they saw the couple oh and it was highly likely that the man that they saw with Catherine Eddowes was jack the ripper the man who killed her mm. um and that also makes it likely that londe did see the face of jack so even though so he wouldn't he's... be able to recognize him he did actually see the face okay i do have to say throughout all these cases the ones we talked about last episode in this jack the ripper has been seen a lot with his victims yeah but like nothing like blatantly 
said, and I mean, if he's a dude that has any sort of like disguise kit, sort of like Sherlock Holmes with like that fake nose type thing, mm-hmm. I probably, I would imagine that he would have something like that. So, because he's out in public all the time. And if yep. he does want to get caught, he probably would do that. So maybe he would shave one day and then not shave at all for like a week. So he'd have like a different complexion. That's true. Because he doesn't seem stupid. I don't know. Hard to tell, but with the amount of people that see him and he still gets away, I'd have to assume it's something like something along those lines where he does some sort of thing to disguise himself. Yes. And then I bet he's also probably a recluse too, where like he doesn't know a whole lot of people and then it only comes out when he needs to. Yeah. You know, that, that seems a bit more likely as well, but still I wouldn't call him stupid. No. Oh, no, so, not by any means, just... If maybe somebody better. saw him the first time, he probably wouldn't look the same the second. True. But I would say he is reckless with the amount of times he has been seen. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'm guessing he had to compensate that for something. Yep. At 1.44 a.m., Police Constable Watkins turned out of Lennon Hall Street and strolled towards Mitre Street and then veered right into Mitre Square. Almost immediately, he saw a sight that sent him reeling back in horror. Catherine Eddowes was lying on her back in a pool of blood, with her clothes thrown up over her waist. Racing across the street, Police Constable Watkins burst into Clearly in Tongues Warehouse, where he knew a retired policeman there, George Morris, who was working as the night watchman. He stated, For God's sake, man, come to my assistance. There is another woman cut to pieces. Pausing to get his lamp, the night watchman then followed Watkins into the square's mouth southwest of his current corner, took one look at the body, and raced off along Meyer Street towards Algate, blowing his whistle furiously, and he whistled as he ran. So, sort of like, with every step, there was like a little, like, burst? Yep, yep, like... So, so like, essentially, a foot... Patrolling police siren. Yep. <laughs> well, that's how they did it back then. You had whistles. Yeah, but like, I'm try like it's probably the most old-fashioned kind of police siren. It's just like tweet, 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 tweet. I'm sure a lot of people were woken up by that. Yeah. Because this was still like really early morning, right? Yep, still really early morning. Okay. In Elgate, he met Police Constable James Harvey and Police Constable Holland and brought them back to the square. Holland went immediately to fetch Dr. George William Sakira from his abode on nearby Jewelry Street. Sakira was at the scene by 1.55 a.m. and later told the inquest that the place where the murder had occurred was probably the darkest part of Mitre Square, although there had certainly been enough light for the miscreant to do the deed. Death, he said, would have been instantaneous once the murderer had cut the windpipe and the blood vessels. Significantly, it was his opinion that the murderer possessed not really great atomical skill, which was contradicting to a lot of what was previously stated about Jack the Ripper. 
um, just that he only had basic knowledge of the anatomy. And when he was asked by the coroner if he would expect the murderer to be spattered with blood, he replied, not really. And this is because he's known to have, like, choked the victim before he cut their windpipe. And this is to prevent, like, blood spatter and whatnot. I did not know that. Yep. So, with all the scarfs and everything that we talked about in the previous victims that, you know, kind of held their head. Uh, heads on it was known that uh and we talked about this with the last corner scene that he would pull like the scarf back or whatnot to bring the woman to her knees and then slash uh, slash the windpipe so kind of choking her getting blood out of the area so that it wouldn't be quite as messy Hmm. still like the blood would probably still pool but it wouldn't just be like splatter yeah okay yeah Uh. so yeah (laughs) i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) yeah it's interesting (laughs) at the time secura did little but more than pronounce the life deceased and told everyone not to touch the body preferring instead to wait for the arrival of the city police divisional surgeon dr frederick gordon brown just to get you know a second opinion and so that someone else would be knowledgeable of that scene and i mean they did make a pretty big mistake their first time with cleaning everything up before anyone got there so they might have been learning from past mistakes and yeah Second opinions. Always get them. Yep. Meanwhile, police officers were converging on Mitre Square from all over the city. Inspector Edward Cullard arrived from Bishop Police Station and ordered an immediate search of the neighborhood, instructing that door-to-door inquiries were to be made in that area around Mitre Square. Next on the scene was Superintendent James McMillan, head of the city police detective department, who arrived with a number of detectives, all of whom he sent off to make uh, to do a search of the Spitalfield streets and lodging houses. As the officers began to fan out through the streets, several men were stopped and questioned, but to no avail. The killer, it appeared, had simply melted away into the night. It is probable that he made an escape via an adjacent St. James place, where there was a metropol- metropolitan fire escape station. Yet the firemen on duty had seen or heard nothing during this time, Neither had the city police constable, Richard Pierce, who lived at number three Mutter Street Square, where his bedroom would have overlooked uh, the murder site. Hmm. George Morris, the night watchman whose whistle had first alerted police to the large atrocity, expressed himself totally baffled as to how such a brutal crime could have been committed so close by without him hearing a sound. But as we talked about with Ripper cutting the vocal cords immediately, they wouldn't have really been able to. See, that's what I was thinking. It's just like you wouldn't hear anything because they couldn't make a sound. Yeah. Plus, if they were choked first, that'd be even harder. So, yeah, Yeah. it probably would only sound like maybe a small scuffle at most. And if your window's closed, probably not going to hear it. Yeah. 
Having murdered both Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the 30th of September, 1888, the Whitechapel murderer fled eastward from Mitre Square and headed into the east end of London, where he left the only clue that was ever really found on Golliston Street, a short walk away from Mitre Square. He had murdered now twice in less than an hour and was well aware that the area would be fl flooded with police officers each one of them intending on hunting him down and catching him. Yet, he didn't head to relative safety of streets to the west or the north or the south, but he stayed in the east part of the square where all the murders had taken place, or east part of the area. Huh. And this is what would lead detectives to believe that he was a local and lived in the area and stayed where he felt safest, his home area. Okay. So. So you murdered two people on the same night. Yep. Police are swarming everywhere. And he didn't appear to leave the area. He didn't appear. And the reason why they know this is that clue that I was talking about was a bloody piece of apron from Catherine Eddowes. Like her apron or was like her, apron her apron that, that was located several streets away. Uh, that was filled with blood. Well, that kind of goes without saying, but how yeah. many, like, so, like, a couple blocks away was one of her items of clothing. Not not full item, just, like, a little piece. Okay. So but it was a piece matched. Of her okay. Yep. It's probably on the bottom of his shoe. It could have been. Hmm. Hmm. And kind of the strangest thing, too, was that this man had seemed to pass several police officers on his escape, especially for not, you know, staying in the immediate area. Yeah. Um, like, you'd almost have to. Yeah. And also, this was why people did the door-to-door -door knocks currently, because, you know, two murders in the night, relatively same area. Yeah. I mean police nowadays even do that kind of stuff so that seems about seems about right yep so this missing segment of the apron was found by police constable alfred long as he patrolled along his route in golliston street around two fifty-five in the morning um so. And this was right outside 108 to 119 Wentworth model dwellings. Okay. So kind of piecing together this night. So the first murder was like around midnight? I believe so. And then this one was around 145. But the first one was in Whitechapel still? Yep. So he fled that scene. Found himself... In the square, and then another one, and then he went home, presumably. Yep. Hmm. And this kind of brings me to a couple of letters that the police had received during this time. On okay. October 1st, a postcard dubbed the Saucy Jack postcard was also signed by jack the ripper this is just after the dear boss one where jack the ripper first got his name mm. 
This letter claimed the responsibility for the both Stride and Eddowes and described the killing of the two women as a double event. Um, okay. This postcard was kind of argued back and forth that it was pre after they announced the deaths and post. Ultimately, they found out that the postcard was more than 24 hours after the killing occurred, so that this was probably a fake. Ah. Okay. Yep. And then two weeks later, on the 16th of October, a parcel containing half a preserved kidney, accompanied by another note, was received by the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, George Lusk. This note had become known as Lusk Letter, or the From Hell Letter, because the return address by the user was From Hell. Yeah. And it had a part of a kidney? Yep, the author of the letter had claimed to fry and eat part of the kidney. And from the previous murders, there were some organs that were missing. Yep, and this handwriting was significantly different than that of the Saucy Jack and Dear Boss postcard. Hmm. I'd say, in my opinion so far, that one's the only credible one. Yep, so with this kidney, they took it to Dr. Thomas Horrocks Opensaw at the nearby Royal London Hospital. He believed that the kidney was human in origin and from the left side of an individual from whom it had been taken. Um, Do you think it was preserved and then cooked? Because then it'd be like alcohol with the kidney. I'm thinking too much culinary about this. This isn't a good idea. Uh, yeah. But... Let me just continue on here. <laughs> weird, weird tangent. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, acting commissioner of the city police, Major Henry Smith, claimed in his memoirs that this kidney matched one, the one missing from Catherine Edo's body because of the length of the renal artery attached to the kidney matched the missing length from Edo's body. And that the forensic examination conducted upon Edois's body and the section of the kidney revealed both signs of Bright's disease. Hmm. Smith's story is considered by some historians to be a bit dramatic recollection of the events, though. Well, it was a dramatic time. It was a dramatic time. So. So, Catherine Eddowes was then buried on Monday, the 8th of October, 1888, in an elm coffin in the City of London Cemetery in an unmarked public grave, 49336, square 318. Kelly and Eddowes's sister attended. Today, the square 318 has been reused for part of the Memorial Gardens for cremated remains. Eddowes lies beside Garden Way in front of Memorial Bend, and in in 1996, the cemetery authorities decided to formally mark Edos's grave with a plaque. Again, with a plaque. Yeah. So, unmarked but numbered grave. Yep. And then moved and then given a plaque. Yep. Huh. I'm pretty sure there was some controversy over that. Probably, as there always is. It is London, so there's a lot of people... And graveyards would get full. So maybe that's common there. Yeah. I don't know. Seems a bit off to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's weird. Just that's fine. 
we could probably do an episode on like deaths and rituals and like uh, funerals i guess and burying uh burying habits of like different cultures and whatnot because people like it's very interesting sort of death rituals and stuff yeah i'd be okay with that but for a later date yeah all right now on to the last conical victim so mary jane kelly is the last of the conical five and compared to the other four conical ripper victims kelly or kelly's origins are kind of speculated and very undocumented and much of the information is possibly embellished as Uh, it would be as it would be and kelly may herself have fabricated many details of her early life as there's Mm -hmm. no like evidence to this and according to joseph barnett the man she had lived most recently prior to her murder kelly had told him she was born in limerick ireland in around 1863 although whether she referred to the city or country is not really known and just that her family had moved to wales when she was a child so born in ireland possibly and then moved to wales is what people tend to think or is just what she said is what she said okay bennett reported that kelly had informed him that her father was named john kelly and that he had worked as an iron works in either Canterfordshire or Camarathonshire. Barnett mm. also recalled that Kelly had mentioned that she had seven brothers and at least one sister. Wait, at least one? Or like at- she probably left before her parents had more kind of thing? All that I could find was at least one sister. So it was probably like an, a sister around her age. They could have had more. I don't really know her parents' ages or how old she was or where she was amongst the mix of the siblings vague descriptions vague descriptions always helpful in murder cases yep one (laughs) (laughs) i know right one brother named henry had supposedly served in the second battalion scots guards though she once stated to her friend lizzie elbrook that a female family member was employed at the london theatrical stage her landlord, John McCarthy, claimed that Kelly received infrequent correspondences from Ireland, which is, like, kind of the only corroborating fact that her family was from Ireland. She at least knew somebody from there. Yes. So, maybe some merit. Maybe. So, both Barnett and the landlady said that Kelly had said that she came from a family of well-to-do people. Carthy also reported Kelly being an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. And around 1879, Kelly reportedly married a coal miner named Davis or Davies, who was killed two or three years later in a mine explosion. Well, that's got to just be unfortunate. Yes, very unfortunate. Without any means of financial support, Kelly relocated to Cardiff, where she had lived with a cousin at the time. Although there are no contemporary records of Kelly's presence in Cardiff, it is at the stage in her life that Kelly is considered to have begun her career as a prostitute, possibly being introduced to this profession by her cousin. No South Wales police records, though, indicate Kelly was ever arrested for prostitution. 
Well, it doesn't exactly mean she didn't either. No. Still. Yeah. So, in 1884, Kelly apparently left Cardiff and relocated to London, where she found temporary employment as a domestic servant while lodging in Christmas Street, Spitalfields. The following year, she's also believed to have relocated to the central London district of Fitzrova. Of what? Fitzrova. F-I-T-Z-R-O-V-I-A. Is this still in England? Yes, it's in London. It's a district of London. Oh. Probably Russian England. Little Russia. You know, maybe. I don't really know. I don't Uh, understand this whole districts within a city and, like, different parts and everything. I'm guessing it's kind of like New York with, like, Queens, Harlem, Manhattan, and all that kind of, like, all of those essentially are just, like, towns within a large town type thing. Like, where it's too big, where it's just, like, that's the community. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. It is weird, though, driving from street to street and one side of the streets in one city and the next side is in a different. And then it still being highly populated building-wise. Yeah. Very confusing. Very, very confusing. Anywho, off the little tangent, back to it. (laughs) Between 1885 and 1886, Kelly is known to have lodged with Mrs. McCarthy in Breezers Hill, Radcliffe Highway. According to her landlady, she left this residence to live with the builder whom Mrs. McCarthy later stated probably would have married her. Gravitating towards the poor east end of London, Kelly reportedly lived with a man named Morganstone near the commercial gas works in Stephanie. And later she lived with a mason's plasterer named Joseph Fleming. It is believed to be at this stage when Kelly had started drinking heavily. Well, she's moved a lot. She's lived with a lot of different men, so. Yep. The one that she married had died. Yeah. She's not in a good place. Nope. When drunk, Kelly would often be heard singing Irish songs, and in the state, she would often become very quarrelsome and even abusive to those people around her, which named her the the nickname of Dark Mary, the third dark nickname Hmm. of the bunch. Yeah, but that doesn't exactly sound out of character for Irish people. No, but I mean, for all the prostitutes we have covered that have drinking heavily, that nickname does seem very common. Yeah, but at least that one seems most natural. Yep. McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) I only say that because we're Irish. I know. (laughs) And we live in Wisconsin. That doesn't help. No. <laughs> McCarthy, her landlady, said she was a very quiet woman when sober, but very noisy when she was drunk. Sounds Irish. Yep. <laughs> By 1887, Kelly resided in a common lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields. Here she became acquainted with Joseph Burnett, whom she first met in April of 1887. The two agreed to live together upon their second meeting the following day so like they would share a bed you know pay for yeah. a room relationships moving really fast there yeah well when you're poor and i mean you find a trusted fellow you gotta stick with them i guess in early 1888 kelly and barnett moved to 13 miller's court a sparsely furnished single room 
in the back of 26 Door Street, Spitafields. It was a single 12-foot square room with a bed and three tables and a chair. Kelly lost her door key, and so she would only bolt and then unbolt the door from the outside by putting her hand through a broken window besides that door. Okay. So, I mean, Jimmy rigging it, locking it, but everyone had access to it. As long as you knew. As long as you knew. Yeah. Barnett had worked as a fish porter in Billings State Fish Market, but when he fell out of regular employment, he tried to earn money as a market porter, and Kelly then turned to prostitution again. Mm. A quarrel ensued over Kelly sharing the room with another prostitute Barnett knew as Julia, and he left the pair on the 30th October. Nonetheless, Barnett continued to visit Kelly on a frequent basis. I would assume as, like, a relationship, just he couldn't really yeah. like living with two prostitutes, no. I guess. No, but, hmm. Okay. Like, I can kind of see where he's coming from. It's just like, yeah, we need the money, but I can't really handle seeing this happen, so I'm going to go. But I'll be here to help. Yeah. But I'm going to go, type thing. Yeah. Okay. In his testimony, Barnett stated that he last saw her live between 7.30 and 7.45 the night Thursday before she was found, and that Barnett was with her for about an hour. I believe she was murdered on that Friday morning. Mm. So, what he said could either be interpreted as he arrived between 7.30 and 7.45, or that he left between 7.30 and 7.45. Given he said that the last time he saw her alive and was with her for about an hour, he probably meant that he left between 7.30 and 7.45, though the, inter- the interpretation is up for grabs. Yeah, I've, I'm more leaning the same way you are. So, whilst he was with Mary Kelly, they were visited by Lizzie Albrick, Kelly's friend, and perhaps they had chatted a bit before they left. Mary Kelly had asked barnett for money but he didn't have any at the time to give her possibly for either drinking or for rent who's to say yeah barnett did return to his lodging house on bishop gate where he played cards until about 12 30 a.m which then he retired to bed at around 4 a.m the morning of the 9th of november two neighbors claimed that they heard a faint cry of oh murder but the cries of murder were quite regular occurrence in the neighborhood and often meant a drunken brawl was taking place or domestic violence Mm -hmm. was occurring which was a bit more normal at the time which is sad to say yeah the local residents really didn't want to get involved so they just kind of ignored it and two neighbors of mary's did hear her cry which is very sad. And at 10.45 a.m. that morning, Mary Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, who is also known as Harry, around to her place to collect her overdue rent. Going into Miller's court, Boyer, he banged twice and there was no answer. No doubt believing that she was unwilling or unable to pay rent, Boyer stepped around the corner and pulled aside the curtain that covered the broken window pane. Moments later, he was ashen-faced and staggered back into McCarthy's shop and said, Governor, I knocked on the door and couldn't make anyone answer. I looked through the window and saw a lot of blood. McCarthy said, you didn't mean that, Harry. And the two men hurried from the shop back into Miller's court. 
stooping down mccarthy himself pushed aside the curtain and gazed into the room and it was a really horrible sight that met his eyes so blood everywhere i'm guessing a very mutilated corpse and whatnot but the thing is this is inside her home yep this is inside her home but she was also a prostitute that could bring people back to her bed yeah she's a bit more well off than the other ones because at least she had a room yeah but different in this way and so this next part is gonna be kind of graphic so maybe skip ahead 30 seconds besides just her corpse being mutilated like all the rest she was also basically skinned like alive or not skinned alive but skinned and then beaten really bad okay where the other corpses you know had just like a couple organs missing or whatnot hers yeah wasn't so much was the skin still there or was that gone it was peeled back oh okay yeah uh-huh um anyways they both basically said they hope to god they never see a site like that again mccarthy sent his assistant to the commercial street police station to fetch the police having first stopped by his shop and a couple inspectors along the way. Okay. So the police that answered Boyer recalled just how horrified he was in their memoirs when he came in. He was barely able to utter like a single word because the sight that he saw was just that bad. Okay. Understandable. These police constables Beck and Dew followed Boyer back to Commercial Street in the direction of Dorset Street. When they arrived on Miller's court, dude tried the door, but it wouldn't open. Inspector Beck, therefore, moved to the window and gazed in the room. And almost instantaneously, he kind of fell back and said, for God's sake, dude, just don't look. And dude ignored him and looked through the window. And he said that sight would stay with him until his dying day. I'm sure that at least one person threw up. Yep. (laughs) Um, At least one. So, Dew said, as my thoughts go back to Miller's court, what happened there, the old nausea, indigestion, and horror just still overwhelm me every time. The one last thing I do want to say about this site was they both said that poor woman's eyes, they were just wide open and staring straight with a look of terror on her face. I didn't include any of the pictures of the crime scene, but you can check them out on jacktheripper.org. I'd rather not, but okay. I I didn't I didn't really want to go into it, and those were more <laughs> quotes. Okay. Than anything, so I can't really say how it was exactly placed. All right. Yep. Mm. Kelly was buried in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leonstone, the nineteenth of November, eighteen eighty eight. And she also has like a gravestone. Oh, a gravestone. A- it wasn't a public grave. Okay. With this one, it being a little later and not discovered till significantly afterward, you know, they didn't have really much to go on and all that from this particular murder scene. Mm-hmm. And I do want to just kind of mention other possible Ripper victims. They just didn't have the same, like, MO and time frame, which is why they aren't considered conical. Okay. But the other possible victims are Annie Millwood, Ada Wilson, Martha Tabram, and Alice McKenzie. 
And these could also be from the gang violence, the domestic violence, and as well as other unsolved murders that happened during this time and in this area. I do want to say again that it was very poverty and crime stricken. It was very overcrowded. And crime mm-hmm. was a regular occurrence that happened in this Whitechapel area. Okay. And JackTheRipper.org does have a bit more on these women. All right. So, that brings us to who is Jack the Ripper? No well, idea. <laughs> me either, to be completely honest. But in the early days, police really thought that this was carried on by a group of local gangs because one of the murders that happened on this time, a woman did actually survive to tell her story and and then later died from her injuries, which is why they thought the first couple were gang-related. But Mm. by the time Annie Chapman was murdered on the 8th of September, the police decided that they were just looking for one murderer. Okay. There was a great amount of speculation that the killer demonstrated a lot of medical or atomical knowledge and it was debated back and forth between the different murders if it was you know the same conical or even if it was uh, a couple of medical students who kind of dressed the same and did it that'd be disturbing yep however these kind of inquests into said medical students really didn't go anywhere and throughout the hunt for Jack the Ripper, police remained convinced that they were looking for just one suspect who lived in that district. And that was partially because of the timeline between the two and the similar descriptions of the men. Yeah. Over 2,000 interviews were carried out by the Victorian police officers with more than 300 people actually being investigated and 80 people were being detained in police custody for these possible Jack the Ripper murders. But investigations and detentions yielded nothing concrete and the police weren't able to really point a finger at any one suspect. So ever since Jack the Ripper murders ended, suspect after suspect has been kind of put forward as being responsible and then eliminated, such as Prince Albert, Edward, Victor, Lewis Carroll, the Freemasons, Dr. Barno, or just kind of a few of the more outlandish Jack the Ripper suspects. Mm. Others, such as like Thomas Cutbush and Carl Freeman, were put forward around the time of the murders and just discarded as likely suspects. And then they were kind of brought back into frame with modern research or like asylum records being opened uh, to the public of these two. But I do have to say, so according to one study in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, the man known as Jack the Ripper is probably Aaron Kominski, a 23-year-old barber of Polish descent who lived in London at the time. There's this shawl that had belonged to his family that had also belonged to Catherine Eddowes, who was murdered, you know, September 1888. And Mm. this shawl reportedly contained seminal fluid, which was tested by Dr. David Miller of the School of Medicine at the University of Leeds. Some researchers, though, have taken issue with Miller and Lou Halen's theory, claiming uh, that there is no evidence on that shaw that was ever presented 
at Jack the Ripper crime scenes, just that the shot had seminal fluid of some random guy. Mm. And mitochondrial DNA provides inconclusive evidence linking Kaminsky to Jack the Ripper murders because it's not you can't get a very specific family or specific DNA. You can get like more of a fam- familial DNA, is from my yeah. understanding. The only thing is, is that this isn't the first time that Kaminsky's name has been floated around as a suspect. Hmm. And investigators know it's from the time make reference to a Kaminsky and a witness who have claimed to see Kaminsky attacking one of the Ripper victims with a knife, though that witness had later refused to testify. So with no evidence, you know, police were never able to make an arrest and Kaminsky died of gangrene in an institution in 1919. Hmm. What kind of institution? I would just assume like a medical one. Oh. Okay. Yep. So, and there's like also a like, a consp- not conspiracy, but like speculation that the show really never belonged to Edo's and whatnot. So it's kind of just up in the air, but the DNA sort of a shot in the dark type thing. Yeah, but. That was just a study from the Journal of Forensic Science. I thought it was worth to include it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it did have DNA stuff, whether or not that DNA was actually present at the scene, or if the Shaw actually did belong to Edo's, I don't really know. Yeah. So, yeah. That is Jack the Ripper. He was never caught. Well, that's probably why he's so famous. Just the Uh... mystery behind it and And he was seen by so many people too that's what i don't get it was there's a lot of witnesses yeah but they were like never all exactly the same nope never all exactly the same similar but just not the same huh well i'm pretty sure he's not still out there no he would be very much (laughs) dead by now (laughs) so you can rest a little easier that way Yes. Uh, Several times over by now. That's a little unsettling. Yeah. That's why he's also probably the most notorious, you know, never been caught, had so many people witness it, and just was able to get away with so many murders. Yeah. Kind of chalks more up to him not being dumb. But also, yes, very much reckless. Very much so. Hmm. All right, with that, do you want to take us out, John John? Sure. If you want to hear more stuff like this, make sure to subscribe to our lovely podcast channel and give us five stars so more people like you can hear stuff like this. And if you want to comment or suggest anything, you can follow us on Facebook at Violent Vice Podcast, uh, as well as on Instagram for the same thing. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Violin Vice, as well as on Patreon. You can support us at patreon.com backslash Vice. And we'd love to hear from you. And if you support us on Patreon, we'd love it a lot because, I mean, anything helps. But we also have some special treats for you if you support us on Patreon. So thank you so much. Thank you guys so much, and thank you guys for listening and your support. And I want to give a special thanks to Brianna Griffith, who is our Patreon of the week. Hooray! Well, thanks. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rebeck. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you. <laughs>